You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. My guest this week is a friend whose realness, passion, and wisdom I've come to admire. She's a mother, a pastor's wife, or as we say in the black church, a first lady, and a mental health advocate as well. She's the founder of the Stigma Stomping brand, and we'll get into what stigma stomping is all about in this episode. The powerful thing about her is that she's not afraid to be vulnerable, and there's power in her vulnerability. Welcome to the show, Mrs. Deshaun Radcliffe. Deshaun Radcliffe, thank you so much for joining me here at Intersections. Welcome to the show. Um, I'm glad you're here to engage with such a necessary conversation. Uh, we're beginning this series on wellness and mental health, and so we're going to try to hit it from different angles over the next month or so. And you're up first, and you're gonna you're gonna set the tone. I believe you're gonna set the tone for the whole series uh, after our conversation, so that we've had before. So I hope to be your co-conspirator today on the topic, to use your terminology. So my first question um, really is: Tell us a little bit about who you are. Um, where are you from, your family, your passions, your talents, all of that. We want to know who you are. Okay. I'm Deshaun. I'm just, really, I'm just a little chocolate girl from Compton. Um. I, 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 I love Jesus. I love my family. And, um, yeah, I'm happily married to this, this dude, Dwight. And I, I totally believe that God obviously made him for me because he's still loving, accepting, and, you know, still closely attentive to me. And we've been at this for about, well, we've been at this for 23 years. Wow. Congratulations. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. I have two daughters, Deshaun and Dominique. They're, they're kind of groans. But that's what I call them. They're my kind of groans. I'm a former deputy sheriff. I'm a pastor's wife, and that goes with God's humor, because I sure didn't see that coming. Um, but um, yeah, I'm just just a regular person now. I mean, I'm, I've recently created um, a creator and founder of a new brand that I'm beyond passionate about. And I'm just looking forward to see what God is going to do in that. But I'm, I'm just a very down-to-earth, transparent girl trying to do whatever I can to touch the world, to change the world, if I can. That's right. Absolutely. 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 You're already doing it. I want to dive right in um, to the topic. You mentioned the organization um, that, you, that you started, the brand that you started. So we're going to dig into that in a little bit. Um, but you've been an advocate for mental health and encouraging people to confront the stigmas associated with it. Usually when people become advocates for a cause, it's because it's, it's kind of personal for them. There's an experience behind that. There's either an event or a series of events, but that's what drives us when we become advocates for certain causes. Um, and we've had a conversation before um, when we first started talking about this, and I, but I want my listeners to know how and why did you become passionate about advocating for such a taboo topic in our culture? Okay, how and why? Um, it really started, um, it started 
with me observing my daughter when she was in middle school, um, just, you know, struggling through a time um, where it was like, I was trying to figure out what was going on. We were as a family trying to figure out what was going on because she went from this happy, excited, you know, all that fun loving outgoing kid to just kind of like her behavior changed where she was going, she come from school, she goes straight to her room. Like that's odd because we used to sit at the table, we talk about our day, you know, and interact and things like that. And where she was talking and outgoing, she didn't have much to say. Sometime I would go into her room and she's just crying, you know, and um, sometimes she would come into our room at night and she's just like, you know, like really upset and really like shaking and whatever, very visibly, you know, you could tell something's going on there. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on, you know, what, what, what can we do? But I'm like, with her being in middle school, I'm like, okay, so this what, okay, she's going through phases and stuff like that. Okay, maybe it's just hormones. Okay, um, you know, puberty trying to, okay, so, and, and this, is, this is just regular stuff because that's what I've been programmed, you know, to think. So, um, you know, that was the only way that I could approach her was, as if, okay, this is just something, it's minimal, everybody goes through, you'll be fine, you know, blah, blah, blah. But uh, it was more than that. It was more than that, but I was not taught to look for more things. I wasn't equipped with the language to pull out, you know, conversation from her so that I can say, hey, okay, wait, this is more than just these surface things that everybody goes through. And what it was was she was um, really struggling with anxiety and depression. And um, because I wasn't equipped to really pull that out of her, I couldn't reach my daughter. And that was devastating for me, you know, um, because it's like I'm right here. Um, I, I go hard for everybody that I can. I'm encouraging, supporting, trying to be all that. But I could not reach my daughter and I couldn't reach my daughter because I wasn't taught to be able to label those things when it's more than just, you know, the stuff that everybody's going through. And when it was something significantly greater than um, what I've been programmed to believe and address. So I was like, like, this is like awful, <laughs> you know, but by the time we did figure out, okay, okay, this is more than whatever that is. It was in there. I feel like yeah. in there, you know, let, let me ask you real quick. Did yeah. she, did she identify? Cause when I hear you say, you know, I didn't have the language. Mm -hmm. I wasn't taught to, and, and none of us were. Um, and and I, I hear, I hear naming, being able to name it, to identify it. Was she able to, or did she need you and your husband to help name and identify this? She needed us to kind of help, you know, name and identify it. And then just some of the things maybe she had heard from school. So she was like, you know, and with dealing with some of the, I guess other people had some similar issues. She was like, okay, this is anxiety, you know. And some of her actions with her, you know, we're trying to figure out. And then she figured it was kind of like, okay, so this is anxiety. And when we did get to a point where we can start pulling out different things, like, okay. And then when I talked to some of my sorority sisters who are in, you know, who are mental health care workers, then I, oh, this is what's going on. This is when they start naming it. And it's like, oh, okay, we need to get her in front of someone who's better equipped than what we are, 
who has skills and tools who can equip her. So when things come up, you know, she'll know or be able to pull from a resource of something that she's been given from them so that um, we can hopefully get through this better because we, we weren't doing a great job. And it caused a lot of frustration and like separation, you know, and we were feeling rejected because she couldn't talk to us, but she couldn't talk to us because she didn't feel safe enough to talk to us because we had not said anything that was relative to what, you know, she had, she was dealing with. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, you don't have no skin in the game. And if you don't say something that these kids can identify with, they are not going to share with you. And yes. he didn't <laughs> until, you know, we got to a point where it's like, okay, so this might be some of the things that's going on, you know, with you. And then it was like, maybe the guards could drop down a little bit. She could put her weight down a little bit and then explain what's going on. But it was just like, I wish I would have known sooner how to pull this out so I could have gotten her in front of someone to get her help sooner. You mentioned sorority sisters who um, worked in the field. Um, I hope parents, I hope so many parents are listening to what you're you're sharing right now. How was that? Because oftentimes when, when you tell parents to, that they need to get help, especially in our community, need to get help. I don't need nobody helping my kids. I don't need no help with it. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody gonna tell me what to do with my kid, you know. And I'm sure every community does that. Yeah. I, I was a young college young adult pastor for seven years, and I don't care if you black, white. Um, I speak from our community because I'm most familiar with that. But every community has that ha- have those parents. Absolutely. Yes. How was was that easy? Um, was that how was that for you to make that transition? Were you ready for that, or was that like an initial like I don't know? Is that safe? Because some parents don't think that that's safe for them. Right. Well, I I felt comfortable because I felt I had a, a, a good enough relationship with who I was talking to. And, and I know, I mean, we've been together for 30 plus years now. So I, I knew she went to school. I, I knew what her field was. I knew all that. So I did feel a level of comfort with the information that she was giving me, you know, about, okay, this is what's going on. And then it's like, crazy enough, I was like, I remember dealing with that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so that was another thing. So then after conversation conversations with her, then w- with, with my sorority sister, then I could tell my daughter, you know what, baby? Mommy, that was some stuff that was real similar to this. You remember when I was sitting in the house and I was staying in my room and I was staying in the dark and, and, and I didn't want to open up the blinds and I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to go. Yeah, I didn't want to do anything. But she was much younger when I had, you know, that issue. But she remembers standing on the side of the bed, you know, trying to talk to me and I could just barely pull the cover off my head. All I could say was. The dark clouds are coming, the shadows are coming. Mm. But that was also because I wasn't taught to identify this. I was depressed, but from my culture, culturally and spiritually, and from, you know, from the church community, we weren't taught and encouraged to say, this is what I was going through or, you know, whatever at that time, or to share even after it had passed, you know, I had gotten beyond that, thank God. But I, I still didn't tell people because that was just a dark time or a 
whatever you want to refer to it as. But um, I was definitely dealing with depression. But even after God had brought me brought me to a point where I was better, I couldn't tell people that that was something I experienced because of the stigma of it. Because then it's like, you know, no, you don't tell people about that. Oh, no, you know, just some things you keep to yourself. Okay, something you just pray about. And this was the things that I was telling my daughter, you know, just pray about it, just, you know, whatever. And when she started telling me that, you know, the anxiety, the depression and talking to me about different people and some of the things that they were doing. She said, I'm in a room with classroom with people who have, you know, like marks on their arm and stuff like that. All of that stuff is like, we couldn't tell people that like openly because then you had a demon, if you know, yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, All yeah. the things that they labeled as whatever. So it was just, it was a whole lot of, I felt like there was a period of being totally unprepared and unequipped but I had to be out of that to see that's not my fault. That wasn't her fault. But culturally, we need to get better at this. Yeah. Because I can't have the only kid who experienced this. And then as I started talking, it, it, I'm not the only person who had, you know, and I, I'm not the only person who dealt with that either. But the same, the same Okay, response was, no, we couldn't tell nobody we were going through that because, you know, they'd have been like, you're not praying, your faith ain't strong enough, yo, well, all that kind of stuff. And yep. it's like, yep. that's a stigma. <laughs> it makes you feel like you can't say anything. You're weak. It, it, it imprisons you. It imprisons you. Absolutely. You're, Absolutely. you're already in a prison, mm-hmm. and so it sends you to solitary confinement. My goodness. And you cannot right? say, yeah. And and, and it's it's... The way that I said it's like you 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 carrying it and you're trying to carry it and bury it at the same time. That's crazy. That's crazy. Because you got to carry all this in your head and then you're trying to act like it's not there too at the same time. It is gonna help. (laughs) Two two things you said that sparked something for me. Um, one is when you shared with her, I can only imagine that now you became safe. Once you shared and reminded her of what your struggle was, right? Now, now you got cred. Yeah, yeah. Now you got skin in right. the game. Okay, mommy, yeah. now I'm going to talk to yeah. you a little bit. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Right? And what's interesting, as I'm listening, you, you're taking me back, and, and not many people know this, and it wasn't severe for me, but it was a season of a year and a half, and I tell people this, when I finished playing basketball, basketball was so much my love. It was number one in my life before anything, including God. I didn't even know. I didn't even know God. And when when back when my seat my career was over and I was no longer playing, mm-hmm. who am I? I went through a eight, eighteen months before I went back home to reset, and I never wanted to go back home because I wanted I didn't want to feel like a failure, you know basketball, hometown hero, goes off to play college ball. I'm supposed to play pro ball somewhere. Yes. And for 18 months, I drank, slept around, um, slept on couches. I didn't, I wasn't eating. I can, I could go on and on. I, I'm not, I don't want to take up this time, the conversation I'm having with you. But it wasn't until later, because I couldn't name it. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the language, like you said. It wasn't until later after being in conversation with people and really after being a pastor and, and having to minister, not equipped mm-hmm. initially because we weren't taught that. Ooh. 
people. So I learned quickly to introduce these people to therapists, people who have trained for that. And that's when I started to think about my my time. Mm-hmm. When I, w- I wouldn't say, again, that's not severe by the grace of God, but I was in it. Yes. I had no ambition, no desire to really do anything for like 18 months. I almost drank myself to death yeah. and, and smoked myself to death. That's, that's a relative story that now you bring them into my brother, which is another force behind my, my doing this. My, my brother, um, my brother passed away in November of last year. My brother was 56. Okay. Um, my brother was the protector, you know. Um, my brother was, uh, he was a, a crip. He was, you know, a gangster. He grew up in Compton. This stuff, the, the residue was still on him, you know, all that. He was, you know, in church and all that stuff, but that was still who my brother was. If I said something was going on, he, you need me to come down that hill? You know, because, <laughs> you know, from where he lived was a little bit of distance, but he was, that was him, you know, and I could just remember um, um, at the end, of, uh, he had had a, a stroke. And when we were trying to get his medical team together, my sister and I had kind of taken the front seat to that. And um, when they were asking us different questions about my brother, they were like, um, you know, asking about different medications that he was taking, about different, you know, conditions that he had. And we were able to answer them, you know, pretty well. And then when they got to the question where they asked us, um, well, what is he taking for his anxiety and depression? Let me tell you something. It was like crickets. Wow. Wow. My sister and I were like, both of us were just like, in that my brother, who was the crip, the gangster, the, all this kind of stuff, now in church, the cool dad, down for everybody, all that kind of stuff. My brother was struggling with anxiety and depression and PTSD because he served in the armed forces. Never felt comfortable enough, never felt safe enough to express that to those that were around him. And then now, in retrospect, we were thinking of different conversations and some of the things we missed it. He wasn't telling us, you know, straight out because everybody had this projected avatar of who my brother was. Mm. But why can't we normalize this so he can say, I'm all that. But you know what, y'all, I'm struggling with anxiety. I deal with depression. I, I have PTSD. But sometimes the stigmas are so strong, people do not feel like they will be loved the same, treated the same and kept in the same esteem after they reveal, but I deal with this too. You know what I mean? Um, I'm, you know, I can't, so for him to have to keep that in his mind, a lot of times we'll be talking, he's just quiet. And that wasn't usually him, but sometimes we could see different times where, man, what was going through his head, you know? And like you said, didn't have the the real drive to want to work. And I could see him drinking and, and different things like smoking, different things like that. And it's like, he never shared that with us. But how long was my brother in prison mm-hmm. in his own mind? Because your mind goes with you everywhere you go. Yeah, yeah. Not like something you can ask. How long? And to just have to present this avatar in front of people and project that you're okay and that everything is whatever. 
when it's not, it's like, this has to go. I'm like, can we normalize the importance of mental health and say when we feel like, hey, I was good, but okay, right now things are going on and I might need to get in front of somebody. I may need to talk to somebody who can help me to get to a better place, a stronger place. What's what's so bad about that? It's that that's my goal to get people to where we're talking. Mm-hmm. We're talking and it's okay. But yeah. culturally we we're getting better, but we we still we still we're still trying to fight through. Mm-hmm. Not there yet. <laughs> not there yet. No, not even we're not close. Um projected avatar. I want to sit on that for a second. I I knew he was going to drop some stuff and I'm anticipating some more, but I want to sit on that for, because here's what, here's the verse that comes to mind where Jesus talks about to the Pharisees and he talks about you put these yokes on people, but you don't lift a finger to help them carry it. Right. This is not what he was talking about. Obviously he's talking about the yoke of the law, Correct. but could this be another yoke? the projected avatar that we carry and people just assume you can carry that you can walk in that and so so many people are walking around with this weight of who we're perceived to be so we have to be that way we have to pretend we have to put forth this image and really we're not, we're hiding behind it and it's heavy so I hope somebody's listening because we all got an avatar. We all do. Right? Yes. So I hope people are really listening to what you're saying and soaking in the transparency, the authenticity, and the wisdom that, that you're sharing. That we're placing that we place this this yoke on people and we don't lift a finger to help them carry. Which leads me into my next question because on the website, you, you said, you, you, know, you write something, you say, we need prayer and. Absolutely. And is in all caps. Yes. Sir. We need prayer, yeah, but it's a prayer and. Yes. Right? Yes. So with that in mind, why is it, starting with the church, but also including society, why is it taboo? Why is it so difficult for the church to, 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 to talk about it? To, to address it, confront it, to walk with people through it. Why is that so difficult? It, it could be a simple answer. I don't know. Maybe you have something different that I haven't thought about, but why is that so difficult? Why, why don't we know it's prayer and? Why? Because I, it, it is so unfair because there's so many people suffering from the pulpit to the pew, which is why I have a shirt that says preaching and still struggling. And my first interview was with my husband because to, to so many people, he's, you know, that's Pastor Rad, that's Dr. Rack, professor, mentor, you know, this great dad, great husband, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and still struggling. Mm-hmm. And anxiety creeps up on him and grips him to a point where it's it's like, it's, it's you cannot act like this doesn't exist. And I'm like, we have to tell, but it has to be okay. Why do they feel like, it's a question of our faith. If we say we're your pastor, a pastor's wife, like my shirt is praising and, and, and still struggling. 
why can't we have both happening? I'm not, it's not that I'm not believing God to bring me out, but I want people to know. I want the people that are there that are coming to the hospital, to the church as they refer to it, you know, as a hospital, to know I can relate to you, honey, because I deal with some of these things too. I, I, and, and I, I may look like it's all together. And I was like, one of the things with me praising, I'm a part of the praise and worship team, feel for about, I don't know, about seven to eight years straight, I had a full on panic attack every Sunday before I went out there to help to usher the people mm. in before I went to usher in the spirit of God, I had a full panic because I don't like being in front of people Mm. like that. I don't like that. And I mean, to the point where it's like, I feel like my throat is about to close. I'm like, I can't remember the note. Okay. I got to use the restroom. Okay. My deodorant turned off. I mean, all this stuff is going on. My sister would have to come in the bathroom with me every Sunday to talk me down to where I could get out there. And I'm just, I sing background. I'm not about to leave, but it was just that, that was a real strong hope that, that it was there all the time. I would have anxiety because I've always had that. I remember Easter speeches and stuff growing up and they would, when they, when they call my name, I could be awake and all that kind of stuff before clapping for the person who when when they call my name, I would act like I fell asleep or I would start crying. It was a, and it's, it's always been there, but you can't say, well, I didn't know. Okay, that's anxiety. That's that's a full-on anxiety and panic attack. Didn't know what that was, but that was something that I lived with. And it was still manifesting itself. <laughs> Even, <laughs> you know, since my husband's ministry started. And so it's just like, I want other people to know, now y'all think that we got it all together. And then sometimes the praise team behind the scenes, we've had a week, you know, people have had different things going on, but we try to get ourselves together. And some of those people who are out there ushering in the spirit of God, they're dealing with anxiety, with depression, with insecurity, with low self-esteem, with dealing with guilt, dealing with, you know, all this stuff. But you can't say that you can't whatever, because, you know, y'all church people or whatever. Church people are human people too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Here's here's my here's my thoughts. Just think, responding to what you you were just sharing. I think the church, in general, has been taught to focus on projects. Like these are things that matter, projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean projects, even in 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 people as projects evangelism mm-hmm. yeah, yeah getting people saved getting people in the, in, 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 in the, getting that membership up that that becomes a project yes. you lose sight of the humanity of people and it becomes a project mm-hmm. um, programs yeah all that that's all exterior stuff yeah <laughs> like- and so and this is one reason why I've stepped away from the church in terms of pastoring um, because I feel like we've, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be a part of perpetuating um, that, which I've been critiquing and frustrated with. I had to look at my own 
ministry. How are you doing? What are you doing that's any different? And I tried to be about people. For me, it's about relationships. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the church, the church leadership, pastors, what have you, have been taught to focus on those things, the projects, the programs, the, the causes that are really big, the calling. Yeah. yeah. And in the midst of that, we miss the people. So therefore, we, we don't know how to handle people. We don't know how to deal with the mess. We don't, we don't want people to bleed on us. Hmm. I'll never forget a, a professor said this in, uh, years ago. He <laughs> said, how can you transform what you're afraid to touch? And that shook me. Yeah. That forever altered how I approach ministry. But every time I talk to a pastor, you know the first question they ask me? And I'm not, I'm, I'm saying 100%. Most pastors, the first question they ask me, how much you running? Mm. How big is your church? Yeah. How big is this program? How many people come in on Sundays? Mm. I've never had a pastor ask me, tell me about what's, what God is doing in the lives of the people in your church, man. Tell me some stories, some testimonies. Never. Mm. So to your point, we don't know how to walk with people through that. And especially when they're in leadership, especially when they're in ministry and they're serving, like you said, they're in the worship team, you're supposed to have it together. You're a preacher, you're supposed to have it together. Mm. So we're missing it. I hope pastors are listening to this. I hope church leaders are listening to this podcast. We're missing it. Yes, yes. Stop and, and, missing people. Go ahead. Yeah, that, and that, that's something I'm grateful that that is not our position as a church yeah. and thing that we tell my husband say you supposed to you're supposed to smell like them you supposed to you know all this kind of when people come to their church when you leave you supposed you might smell yeah. like several different things because yeah. you you're close to the people Absolutely. we want our people we want to be touchable we don't want to sit elevated away from our we want to sit among our, our people we want to talk to them and it's just like with me and with him a lot of times they're like, you shared that. I mean, it's we we've been frowned upon by some people in ministry because they're like, y'all told the people that you can't tell them that they're not gonna respect you. They're not gonna this and all that kind of stuff. It's like, I feel better letting them know I can relate to you. You know why? Because I did that too. So Absolutely. one thing that we say quite often, and we heard it from someone else, but it fit. Is like, I'm gonna get naked so you'll feel comfortable taking your clothes off too. Mm. And do you know some people like what? Wow! Like what? But it's like that's how we present because this yeah, yeah. we are for real. And when I grew up in church, I I can't think of one pastor's wife that I felt like I could talk to and tell some of the things that weren't, you know, stuff to be excited about or whatever about me to say I'm dealing with this, I'm struggling with this, or you know, I have a problem with this or. No, because they were untouchable people. And I'm like, one thing, when people join our church, there's been a few to say, you know what you said to me? You said, you're safe. You said, you're going to lock arms in your in my struggle with me. I said, I am. I am. And along the way, I'm going to tell you some stuff about me so you don't think that uh, I'm all whatever, because I'm not. I'm not. We're trying to get through this together. We're, we're, we're going through our salvation together. Salvation, saved, we salvaged. Salvaged. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, come on. So, yeah. I, I, 
Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I've heard that too. We've heard that too. But it's like, it's not about that. So we may not be a big old giant mega, you know, church with a large amount of money and all that kind of stuff. But the people who with us, they know you, you we, we going to roll with you. Yeah. And I can tell well, well, you what's going on. They can tell us what's going on, the real stuff, because they know I'm not about to shun you or make you feel like whatever. The purpose is to pull you out of the pit, but I'm going to tell you some of the stuff about me so you'll feel comfortable talking about, you know, your things. You don't have to come in here all shined up. That's What is that where they want you to get clean before you get in the water? How does that work? How does that work? Yeah. I may be saying it incorrectly because I, I don't even get clean before you get in the tub. Something is crazy to me. It's foolishness. I'm like, what? No, no I get you. I, I got the metaphor. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Jesus didn't have a mega ministry either. No, that, that was a down dude. Yeah, he, he I, had. I flipped the table over Jesus myself. Yeah. And Jesus was with, <laughs> with the rough ones. He was, you know, he was one of our favorite things from the Message Bible. He became like he came flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Something it's something like that. The way that they said in the mess, in the message translation. I'm like, John, I was, John, John, one fourteen. Moved into the he just came like us came in our hood. It's like so you yeah. what else? Yeah, what? yes. And he Absolutely. dealt with regular people, regular people, and that was why he wasn't accepted in summer mm-hmm. because he was just like I'm a down to earth, down to earth dude, just like they are. So, mm-hmm. so. Talk about how you've had to, or what what you've done, uh, especially during COVID, because COVID during during the time of COVID, and I think many people would would know this if they're tracking this stuff. Depression increased, suicide ideation, particularly among teenage girls, increased. They said by like thirty four percent. And many people have been struggling in the, in the, the, the isolation. Many people are looking for help, needing help. How have you and or your daughter during this time of COVID, how has it impacted you, your, your mental health? And, and what are you doing to, 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 to ground yourself and, and, and have those resources to move forward and, and navigate through this time? Hopefully we, till we can get to the other side of this, this mm-hmm. pandemic. What yeah. are you doing? What am I doing personally in full transparency, sir? Um, b- before all of this happened, I was in therapy and the world closed. And I thought, you know, you know, it's time for we would be okay and whatever. But let me tell you about the end of July and August, all of August, which is supposed to be. I mean, that's my birthday month, my husband's birthday, our anniversary. That's supposed to be a cool month. Yeah. yeah. The shadows came mm. for me. And I had like a totally non-productive month. The whole month. I can't think of any time that I did um, much of anything. I mean, I was in front of people a couple of I was a couple of youth symposiums um but it took everything for me to show up the way that i could see myself was like a sloth just i'm like i'm like almost crawling trying to be there because before 
August, I had made a commitment that I was going to do this. I had already spoken to these people. So they were expecting me to show up to talk about the brand, to talk about, you know, have different discussions with some people. Now, during the discussions, I was okay, but it took so much for me to get there. And I'm like, I saw, I was in my garage and I saw an area where it was a cobweb and I could see, it's like this cobweb and I could see a couple of, you know, bugs that were, should have been stronger than this cobweb. Cobwebs are not that strong to me, but I'm like, it's holding these, these this bigger mosquito, it's holding this, it's holding this whatever in there. And I'm like, see, I should be, what am I fighting? What is like, I was shadow boxing. I'm like, God help me. That's all I could keep saying. God help me. God help me. I had to get back in therapy and not just like play therapy. She put after assessing me and being assessed a couple, I'm in the every week therapy for a while. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what I could not, what I cannot do is be a hypocrite. And sit like, okay, I'm gonna get over, it. I'm gonna get past whatever. It's like I have to do what I'm telling other people to do. Now I don't know if this is like, God, did you allow this? Like, what what is going on? And someone called me that I don't know. She was someone. In, she's in Pennsylvania. I think it's where she says she's from. And she's seen my website and some of the different interviews that I did. And she was saying, I feel like you're under attack right now she was telling me some specific things that I even prayed to God for and I told my husband and she was just like what you're trying to do is so powerful and so necessary and because you're trying to do this the enemy is really trying to cut you off because this is going to free people this is going to put people you know in a place of liberation and and you know whatever where they don't have to live in this bondage and these chains and stuff, which the enemy has had them in for so long. But it was just so hard for me feel to do anything for this, for myself, for what, and my husband is praying for me and I'm trying to pray for myself. And I'm just like, I mean, the shadows were so heavy. It was like, I'm shadow boxing and I can't see what it is or where it's coming from. I have no warning. I'm just, yeah. So what am I doing? What do I do for myself? I stay in front of, um, I have a therapist. I was so grateful to find a Christian therapist that looks like me because with all that's going on and I love and I believe in God and all that, but I needed somebody who could relate to me with some of the stuff that I was dealing with also and thinking as a a, a woman of color, as a black female, because all this stuff that's going on, this is hard. This is hard to, you know, to stay hopeful. And for my daughter who missed the whole lot, she was a 2020 baby. So, you know, the prom and all that stuff, she wasn't able to do it. She's been dipping, it's been up and down as well. And how do you give someone hope when you have nothing to pull from? I don't know what this is. And it keeps doing ebbs and flows. I can't speak really informatively into you about we're this is going to be fine we're going to be okay this is going to go because i don't know i don't know so the same thing was for her but we we mommy's in there we, 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 we put her back in therapy 
okay. as well to try to help through this. And I, I recommend it for anybody. They, they just know stuff. They, they know stuff we don't because they bring it out. And I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. And I have to go hard for this because I live this. I live this. Yeah. I, I'm glad you shared about having a therapist that looks like you. Um, I, I've, I've been in therapy and um, I highly recommend it. Um, there's going to be a time that soon that I'll probably re-engage, go back into therapy. Um, but it was, I've been in therapy with different types of people, white male, black woman, I grew up around women, mom, mm -hmm. grandmas, aunts, cousins. So I'm comfortable with a woman, particularly a black woman, speaking into my life, right? Um, but I'm glad you shared how important it was to, that it's not, a, it's not wrong to want someone that looks like you, that can identify with you, that maybe have the same, similar experiences that knows the nuances of what it means to be a woman of color navigating, first of all, the country without COVID. Mm -hmm. Then you add COVID mm -hmm. and it just exacerbates many of these issues. Yes. So I'm glad you shared that. And it gives, hopefully, those who are listening, it gives them permission to look for therapists that look like you. Like that's not a bad thing. That's yeah. not prejudicial. That's you looking for someone that can identify with the nuances of your walk and your life. Yes. And I asked specifically. And I looked, I was like, when you say it now, I'm looking at the pictures, you know, and with my insurance, I was just like, I don't see nobody. <laughs> and, you know, I, I laugh when you say that. <laughs> but as, as I'm thinking about one, one of my experiences in therapy where it was a white male and he's a nice guy, but even even the way I sat in the seat, he made projections onto me that had nothing to do with what I was thinking or feeling. Literally, I was sitting with my arms crossed because it was cold in your office. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm a bit anemic, so I get cold really easily. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And he projected onto me, you're sitting this way and you're sitting that. And I'm saying to myself, I don't believe a brother would say that. If anything, he might ask me, are you okay? I see you sitting with your arms crossed. Tell me what's going on with that. And I would just say, man, I'm cold. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. <laughs> and then there, was a, then there was another incident where we, uh, we were, I was in therapy and something else was said. And I was in therapies, therapy with my ex, my ex-wife, years ago. And she said something. Um, and, and he projected onto something she said. And, and it had to do, and it was specifically having to do with something that was typical for black culture. Mm -hmm. Like a, a black person would say this thing this way. And she was describing how someone was saying something, and her family was saying something. And he projected and described it as, rude he kind of threw it out there like that was rude right and she and I both were kind of looking at him like nah it's not rude that's just kind of how we talk we're just that straightforward that's just how we talk and after those couple of incidents I realized that's when I realized how important it was to not just sit in front of anybody it's um yeah the the 
how do I? No, I'm not really politically correct. Um, <laughs> you don't have to be, because I'm not. Okay, but the hood, the hood in and me wasn't open to that. <laughs> I just was. It's, it. I just was not. I was not open to um, experimenting and sitting across from someone who I didn't feel like I could put my weight down with mm. and just just ooze the way that I needed to, to talk about what, and when I talk about it, I don't want to have to try to pull you in for you to be able to relate to this because you come from a different background and you cannot relate because you're from a different experience. I, I wasn't open to that. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I was very specific. And when they were talking to me, they were named, I said, I need someone who, looks like me who can relate to my experience and the different things that we're dealing with and living with as a race and culture of people. And you know, and I had to get very, because did you try ours? I'm not trying yours. They accept my insurance. So <laughs> nobody to them. I'm not reaching from your pool because you don't have nobody in here that's making me look feel like, you know, so Sometimes you need what you need and unapologetically you need what you need. So this, this is the circle and that's out of the circle. I'm not going out of the circle. This mm -hmm. is what I need right now for where I am. And so I wasn't open to negotiate that. It was like, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Thank you for sharing that and, and being honest about that. And again, I hope people who are listening would understand, um, that they have permission to do that. You don't have to just take anybody because they say they're a therapist. You need to make sure you're sitting with people who you feel comfortable with. What do you say? <laughs> Letting go the weight. Yeah. Putting down the weight. Put my weight down and feel like, yeah, okay, I could talk. Yeah. Yeah. So before we go, um, tell us a little bit about the brand, Stigma Stomping. Um, how'd you come up with the name? I think we can kind of figure that you kind of get that but tell us a little bit about the brand yeah stigma stomping it it's it it, it means we're, we're refusing to remain silent we're refusing to remain silent we we're crushing we want to crush the stigmas by having open conversations those tough conversations so with me with the with the brand is to encourage us to talk. I'm hoping that I'm wearing something when we wear our t-shirts or when someone is wearing, can a t-shirt change the world? I don't know, but this is what I have right now. So when we have something, I'm hoping that the, whatever the shirt is saying that a person is wearing, someone can relate and connect to that. And I'm hoping that that will start a conversation. And maybe in that conversation, the person can put their weight down and feel like, okay, so, you know, and we could get something going. Maybe that can start a relationship and that can get a person to where they're talking and they could be encouraged to, hey, you know what? You might need to talk to somebody, you know, get to a mental health care worker or somebody like that to help you through this, to get some tools and stuff. So when this comes up to a point where it's, it's overbearing, you have someone that you could connect with or you have something you can pull from to help you to get to a better place. And I don't know many people who can't benefit from the experience of mental health care workers. I really don't because it's, it's just, it's just better. 
in my opinion, to have someone that you can talk to and that they are trained to help give you direction. So stigma stomping is about saying, I'm going to talk about it. We're going to normalize this. I don't have to feel like I'm a prisoner in my mind because you're not alone. Somebody can relate to you. Somebody, hopefully you can talk to somebody and connect with somebody where you can see, okay, well, I just thought it was just me and I've been holding on this all this. Like, no, I get that, you know, and get to a point and a level of comfort where we're talking about these things so people can live with with love and acceptance and healing and, and freedom, whether they're with their family or not. Because can you imagine people in their family, in their home, they have to live within these with these stigmas feeling like I can't even tell my sister, my mama, my friend, the people that are closest to you. That's a hard way to live. Cause so so let me let me before we go, that's, that's a good point. Let me ask you this. What for what about that person who's listening who says, I can't tell my family. They're just not where you are or where I want to be, or I agree with everything you're saying, but I can't tell my family. Um, I'm I'm a loner. What about those except those exceptions where they feel like they have nowhere to go mm-hmm. in that in that close circle? But those people who feel like they can't speak in the close circle, I would say there's always resources. This 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 great thing is good and and it's not sometimes, but you can look up something that's going to give you information where you can talk to somebody. There are mental health care workers who are there for free, where whether it's online or a hotline or something like that, that you can call or whatever, but get to somebody. If you don't feel comfortable within your village or within your crowd, still get to somebody where you can feel safe enough to talk. Because I'm telling you, I really believe that I also see the manifestation of the suppression of this kind of thing. It's in somebody that's very, very close to me. And I believe that it takes away from your quality of life. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that our minds are made to hold on to all of that stuff. So if you don't feel comfortable with those who you're close to, please, please use your whatever resource you have to reach out to someone who you're not, you know, connected to in that type of way, but that will still offer the help that you need. Mental health care workers, they are available. There are hotlines and different things like that available. Please, please use something to get the help that you need. Do not suffer in silence. Do not do that. And and I'm going to have some, um, there'll be some uh, resources in the show notes for anyone who who needs, uh, who needs them. Wow. This was, um, Thank you so much for your transparency, um, for your testimony, your story, your wisdom, your insight, your passion. Thank you. You, 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 say, you, you said, uh, you know, can a T-shirt change the world? But this is what you said. This is what I got. Yeah. And so I want to I want to speak. This is the pastor coming out again. <laughs> I want to speak David's ministry over you over stigma stomping. All David's, the resources David had in the beginning were stones. That's it. He didn't have many resources. But he used what he had. And the story says that he killed Goliath. Yes. 
And that changed the dynamics of the context for the people of Israel. It changed the dynamics for the, the leadership. They began a transition with the people of Israel, with Saul still being there. It changed the dynamics of so much to the point where he became king and he had abundant resources. I speak that over your, your brand, that you would use these resources, what you have, the stones, and you would be as confident in those stones as you will be when you have abundant resources. And then you would look back over your body of work. And that's when you'll see how you've changed the world or the worlds of people that come in touch with you. So thank you for what you do. Um, how can people follow you um, and stay in touch with and, and, and keep up with what you're doing? Right now I'm on Facebook and on Instagram and you can just go on the web stigmastomping.com stigmastomping.com there's also a stigma stomping page on Facebook yes and your handle on Instagram is that stigma stomping as well it is yes okay yes. so all the same yes go on there and you'll find me and I'm coming back uh, it's like I told you that non-production, but it's like, okay, I've been getting things together and trying to get my mind back and grateful for my therapist helping me to lift the weight a little bit. A little bit, a little bit. So I, I, I see it. I got to get I don't, it. I, I don't know if they, I, I think they can hear it, <laughs> but I have the advantage of also seeing it during this conversation. I see it. I see it. Thank you so much. Thank you. So Let's thank you once all. again. Thank you once again. Um, and I appreciate everything that you've brought to the table today. My pleasure. My pleasure. You've been listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr. I appreciate you for joining me and listening in. And as always, thank you for parking with me at the Intersections.